You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Winter seems to have finally come to Los Angeles at last. It's even raining right now as I record this episode, and I've cautiously put the sandals away for the next two weeks, because winter, let's be honest, ain't a long affair in the City of Angels. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got two potential award season contenders, The Tragedy of Macbeth and Tick, Tick, Boom. I was lucky enough to get to check out Joe Cohen's Tragedy of Macbeth early. It actually comes out on Christmas Day, and I think it's also going to be on Apple TV, but go see it in the theater. I do love me some Shakespeare, so this was right up my alley. And with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand as the leads, you know you're going to get some top door acting. As a warning, though, if you're not a big fan of The Bard, this film will be torture for you. It is some of the most Shakespeareist Shakespeare you will ever see. In tone, it reminds me kind of of Ingmar Bergman films, very dark and contrasty locations, very surreal. Overall, I liked it because I like Shakespeare and it is certainly giving you all kinds of Shakespeare, but I don't think the film did anything that special to have it stand out amongst the cavalcade of other Shakespeare films and adaptations. Then we've got Tick, Tick, Boom. I have been a pretty big Broadway fan since I started singing in choir when I was 14, and Rent was the second musical that I got majorly into after Wicked. Tick, Tick, Boom is a biopic about Rent's creator, Jonathan Larson, and was adapted from an off-Broadway show he had written and performed about his life for the first time in 1992, four years before Rent's debut. We're talking a little bit more about the film in the episode, as it's for sure going to be up for some big awards this year. Tick, Tick, Boom could only have been made by someone entrenched in New York theater. And luckily, the studio was smart enough to put it in the very capable hands of Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is a gorgeous, touching film about an amazingly talented man and the challenges of life as an artist. If you even kind of like Broadway, this film is for you. If you are a creative person and aren't necessarily a musical fan, don't let the musical thing deter you. It's not a huge, overwhelming part of the film. It is just, it is a beautiful, beautiful film. And my God, Andrew Garfield, man, he is having one hell of a year. This, the Tammy Faye movie, like he's having a good year. Before I introduce this week's topic, I have a little bit of personal news. This week, tomorrow, if you're listening to this episode on its release day, I'm starting a job at a major film studio that I have wanted to work for my entire life. Like top of the list, like if you could pick a company to work for, what would it be? I'm I'm starting a job there for me. 
I, I don't know what I can say about it right now or specifics, but know that I'm very excited and this is a humongous leap forward in my career. But I think we're at the point now where most of y'all don't know me personally. I think we're at about that listenership based on numbers. I don't know that many people personally. So and as I don't give up too much about myself on this show, which if you know me is quite surprising because my personal pastime is talking about myself. Um, What you're probably really wanting to know is what does this mean for the Tinsel Factory? Well. Maybe nothing, maybe a little, maybe a lot. To be honest, I don't know yet, but it will continue on. This podcast will continue on, just maybe not as often as it has been. Producing this show has been an absolute godsend over the last 18 months as it kept me working insane throughout a global pandemic. Most times, it was the only way I'd know what day it was. But since I had these 18 months to learn how to podcast from knowing basically nothing about knowing how to podcast. The good news is, is that I can do these episodes in significantly less time than it used to take me, like 75% amount of time less overall. So depending on my professional workload, I can more than likely continue to do this in my free time, especially since it appears that I'll be working from home half the time, which means no commute. If that's not the case, I am going to move the podcast to an every other month schedule. I won't leave you high and dry. This could be a semi-permanent thing. It could be a permanent thing. It might ebb and flow because, you know, studios, there's busy seasons, there's quiet seasons, like anything else. Um, but we're just going to roll with it. We're going to figure it out. I just wanted to let you all know what's going on and wanted to share something I'm really excited about. And I absolutely love doing the show. It has become my favorite hobby and it is not going anywhere. So with that out of the way, this week, it's the last episode of the year, and we're going to cover some of the big stories and goings on of the last years of, well, American cinema primarily, let's be honest. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Uh, good morning. Uh, here I am in my homeland in Wales, and at 83 years of age, I did not expect to get this award. I really didn't. And... Um, very grateful to the Academy and thank you. And I want to pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman, who's taken from us far too early. And again, thank you all very much. <laughs> I really did not expect this. So I feel very privileged and honored. Thank you. Well, this year started out pretty much the same as it ended in 2020. We were in lockdown and the second or third wave of the pandemic was in full swing. I've lost track at this point. Then a bunch of a-holes tried to overthrow the government in the U.S. because somebody on the internet and the president told them to. And then that woman glued all her hair to her head using Gorilla Glue. We found out Army Hammer was a cannibal or whatever the hell is going on there. And then we all realized that 2021 was just going to be a really bad sequel to 2020. In February, we got the Golden Globes, which was weird and partially on Zoom. Same for the SAG Awards. When it came to the Golden Globes, everybody not in show business learned that you pretty much buy a Golden Globe in lieu of actually earning one for your hard work. I mean, it's only a group of 87 people deciding who wins. Of course they were being bribed. That's not a lot of people to bribe if you really want a statue. This, frankly, was a worse kept secret in town than the fact that Ellen DeGeneres was not the greatest person ever. An investigation by the LA Times earlier this year found that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, whom put on the Golden Globes, regularly pays its 87 seven members in excess of $1 million U.S. annually for serving on various committees, which may actually jeopardize its status as a tax-exempt nonprofit. 
The Hollywood Foreign Press's small membership makes it easier to sway as far as like who to vote for than the significantly larger voting bodies of the Academy Awards or the Television Academy, which are in the thousands. And the L.A. Times reports further alleged that members have been offered access to actors and film sets, as well as expensive gifts, including nice hotels and dinners. Of course they were. What also came to light was the fact that there are some deeply rooted diversity issues within the Hollywood Foreign Press. Was any one surprised. I mean, there hadn't been a black member added to the organization since 2002. For those of you who are bad at math, that's about 19 years. On February 25th, three days before the Golden Globe ceremony, the Hollywood Foreign Press released a statement claiming that it was, quote, fully committed to ensuring our membership is reflective of the communities around the world who love film, TV, and the artists inspiring and educating them, and that it planned to work towards bringing in a more diverse group of members. The Hollywood Foreign Press further stated that over 35% of its members were from non-European countries and does contain people of color, but it wasn't aware that none of its current members were black. In response to the rising controversies, Tom Cruise returned his three Golden Globes. Yes, I was also surprised to learn that Tom Cruise had acting awards. I mean, this was clearly in a bid to stay relevant because, you know, he's been out of the public eye for a really long time. And I honestly, to me, and I think to most people, this was viewed more as a self-serving publicity stunt than actually being morally upset about what happened. But, you know, there you go. On March 9th, the Hollywood Foreign Press announced that it had hired a strategic diversity officer and hired a law firm to, quote, support the continued development of a confidential reporting system for investigating alleged violations of our ethical standards and code of conduct. Because there were complaints about that, including a Norwegian journalist whom claimed that she was repeatedly denied membership for bullshit reasons, basically. That law firm had to jump to work real quick because in April, the former president of the Hollywood Foreign Press, Philip Burke, was expelled from the organization after he emailed fellow members an article that described Black Lives Matter as a racist hate movement and further complained that a person of color civil rights activist had purchased a home in a nice neighborhood. Yes, he's a very elderly white man. Anyway, on May 3rd, the Hollywood Foreign Press announced that they would work towards increasing their diversity within. I don't know what they thought the earlier stuff was, but they're just like, we promise we're doing it. We promise we're doing it. NBC, which airs the Golden Globes, as well as Netflix and Amazon Studios, announced that they would not collaborate with the organization until they saw positive change. NBC further announced that they would not be airing the award show in 2022, but was open to working with them again in 2023. On October 1st, the Hollywood Foreign Press released a list of 21 new members that it had recruited under their new reforms, increasing its membership by 20% in the process. The Foreign Press further announced on October 15th that it still plans to hold the 79th Golden Globe Awards ceremony anyway, with or without a U.S. broadcaster. I should also mention that this year's ceremony was the lowest viewed ever. This week, the foreign press trucked along, trying to further tout the changes that they were making, but everyone's still pretty mad at them, and there's little doubt that any nomination from that organization will be massively tainted this year. This, frankly, could spell the end for the Golden Globes because most people aren't probably going to go, and if people stop going, that's that's pretty much going to be it. I mean, they were borderline redundant anyway with the Oscars and the Emmys anyway. 
Since we're on award shows, let's talk about that mess that was the Oscars, which occurred on April 25th. After seeing the debacles that happened when it came to the Globes ceremony and several other award shows because they were using the Zoom and there was technical issues with microphones and people were wearing hoodies like crap like that, the Academy decided to ban basically dressing like crap and also decided to run a series of disastrous experiments since they knew they weren't going to get a lot of people to tune in anyway. Nobody had seen the majority of the films that had come out since the movie theaters hadn't been open since March of the previous year. What occurred was a abysmal hot mess in a train station and some other random locales around the world. The ceremony was odd, lacking in any of the razzle-dazzle the Oscars famously has, and of course there was that whole Chadwick debacle. For those of you who may have forgotten, Chadwick Boseman passed away in August of 2020 after a long battle with colon cancer. His last live-action appearance was in the film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, in which he gave, frankly, the performance of his career. The entire award season, pretty much, saw every Best Actor award going to him, and the producers of the Oscars were banking their entire show, the entire tone of the show, on the fact that it would happen on cinema's biggest night. Now, only two people going into the award show knew who won what, as it is pretty much every year since the early days, and under no circumstances are they allowed to tell anyone who won. So these people who knew the order that these awards were going to be given in, depending if you're a glass half empty or a glass half full person, had the pain or the pleasure of watching a slow moving three hour car accident, knowing full well that the moment the producers had banked the entire show on was not going to happen. What actually happened was a cringy mess. Joaquin Phoenix took that awkward little stage with the crushed blue curtains, did the whole roll call of nominees as you do, and when it came time for the moment the entire night was hinging upon, the Oscar goes to... Anthony Hopkins? Yep, Mr. Hopkins won his second Oscar that night, and being at the age of 83, being a very high-risk individual for COVID-19, being pretty sure he wasn't going to win because Chadwick had been winning all season, and, well, just being super-duper old and in Wales, was asleep when he won his Oscar. Joaquin Phoenix sputtered out that he accepted the award on Hopkins' behalf, and shortly soon after, the credits rolled over a shot of a dumbfounded audience of fancy people. The next day, Anthony Hopkins gave a lovely speech thanking everyone for his win and explaining why he was not present in any form that night. You heard a little bit of it at the first break. And to be honest, this may be an unpopular opinion because everybody really liked Chadwick Boseman. But as I said back in May, when I gave my impressions of the Oscars, Anthony Hopkins, out of the five nominees, he gave the best performance. Yes, Chadwick gave the performance of his career, but so did Anthony Hopkins. And Anthony Hopkins has been in the game a lot longer. It sucks that Chadwick Boseman will never get an Oscar to, you know, feather in the cap of his career because damn, he was one hell of an actor. But that's that's life, kids. Some, I mean, Peter O'Toole, who was one of the best actors of all time, he didn't get an Oscar either. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that you were. He wasn't a worthy actor. It just means he was never the best actor in a particular year. Positive that came out of that night was that Chloe Zhao became the second woman to win the Best Directing Oscar, which was a nice cap off on the night for a year of films that frankly will always have an asterisk over them as to whether or not they were Oscar worthy if it had been any other year. But these are the films and these are the awards that we got. 
the award show mess out of the way, let's go into some positives. In the States, as the vaccines began rolling out, the movie theaters came back, but unfortunately, not all of them. Several theater chains, including Pacific Theaters, announced that the year of closure in most markets meant that they did not have the capital to reopen. Some were purchased by the Regal Cinema chain, and some were also uh, purchased by AMC. There might be some in other places. That's what happened in L.A., In California, movie theaters reopened in mid-March. Some places were earlier than that, some quite a bit later. Because of the times, there have also been many modifications made to how studio films, theatrical films, are being released, especially at the studio level, with some studios choosing to release some of their films on both the streaming platforms as well as theatrical releases. This led to several members of the industry, starting with Christopher Nolan, voicing complaints. And so far, only one lawsuit has been filed, which we talked about last week, which was Scarlett Johansson suing Disney because they allegedly broke her contract when they put Black Widow on Disney+. Plus and in theaters at the same time. For more on that, because that was a huge story this year, check out last week's episode. I don't want to be super redundant for something that was literally last week. Theaters are still very much in a state of flux, and this is especially obvious when you look at the international box office numbers. For the second year in a row, and for the second time ever... A Chinese film was top dog at the international box office for 2021. This year, that film was The Battle of Lake Shanglin, which has made $900 million U.S. and counting. The second highest grossing film at the international box office was also a Chinese film called Hi Mom. Third was the James Bond film No Time to Die. As I also mentioned in last week's episode, how the U.S. market determines what a successful film or television show is currently shifting drastically, whether it be for the pandemic years or for good. We don't know yet, but it's shifting from box office cash numbers to subscribers on streamers and people who are engaging with certain content. But in other places in the world, the movie theater is still the place to go if you want to go see a new movie. It'll be interesting to see if this trend continues as the world slowly recovers from the pandemic. Are international films going to have more of a cut of the box office? We'll have to wait and see. If streaming eventually takes over as a standard for film releasing in the States, will that change what cinema is? Will it become a novelty akin to seeing a play at a theater instead of a more recreational activity as it is now? I live in L.A., so theaters won't ever fade completely from here, but... What about everywhere else in the world, or at least in the country? Am I going to have to change the scope of this podcast? What films count as part of cinematic history? What is cinematic history? Are streaming films cinema at all? Well, all those questions are a future me problem when it comes to defining the scope of this podcast and still likely several years off. So I just hate thinking about this art form that I've devoted my life to being reduced to a phone screen. It just it makes it makes my soul hurt, you guys. The good news is, for now, the studios are working with the theaters to keep them around. Late last year, it had been announced that Warner Brothers would concurrently release its new films on HBO Max and in theaters at the same time for 2021. It was reported that they also paid their talent and other creatives as much as $200 million to do this without anybody getting mad that their box office takes were going to be reduced. Again, for more about that, check out last week. This will not be happening for 2022, though, as it was announced this year that AMC Theaters and Warner Brothers struck a deal that their films would show exclusively in theaters for 40 Five days before appearing on HBO Max. Universal has a similar deal with AMC as well, which was struck in 2020. 
In other news, MGM, which has been chugging along forever despite of numerous financial issues and hand changes, seems to have, yet again, found another parent company. Late last year, and I think I mentioned it on an episode, not like just as a special thing at the beginning, but MGM announced that they were on the market for any interested buyers. On May 17th of this year, it was announced that Amazon had nibbled on that line. Nine days after that, it was further announced that MGM will be acquired by Amazon for $8.45 billion, subject to regulatory approvals and other closing conditions. The studio MGM will continue to exist, but it will operate as a label under Amazon's existing content arm and will be another part of Amazon Studios and Prime Video. By my estimation, this is like MGM's ninth or tenth hand change since the studio was founded in 1924. With Amazon's acquiring of MGM, the company will gain a ton of content for their streaming platform, which is the name of the game these days. Amount of content over quality of content. The biggest content or franchise to come out of this acquisition is probably James Bond. I'm sure within the next year, you'll be able to watch all the James Bonds on Prime Video, which is going to make it very hard for me to come up with any more excuses as to why I've only seen like three James Bond movies. Don't hate me. I just it's not for me. Another big deal that was announced this year was Christopher Nolan's with Universal Pictures. In September, it was announced that Christopher Nolan, director of the Batman Begins franchise, Inception, Dunkirk, and Tenet, had left his long-term relationship with Warner Brothers after they did his film Tenet pretty dirty. He was also incredibly vocal when it came to Warner's decision to concurrently release all of its films on HBO Max for 2021, and while he voiced his opinion, he called the streamer the worst streaming service. Nolan got a deal you don't see a lot of these days for one film or one filmmaker that isn't within a franchise because there just aren't that many directors or filmmakers with the big name recognition to do this. Even Spielberg doesn't get the big boy budgets like he used to anymore. The deal with Universal allegedly includes a $100 million budget, with Nolan getting 20% of the box office's first run, which means he takes his 20% of all earnings before the film breaks even monetarily. It will also be exempt from the 45-day windows that many studios like rival Warner Brothers and Universal have made with movie theaters. Nolan wants none of that streaming nonsense. He wants his regular theatrical run. He will also get final cut, meaning he doesn't have to compromise with higher ups in Universal as to what the final film will be. That is 100% Nolan's call. There's already some massively awesome A-list talent attached to the film, which will be a World War II era epic about Jay Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb. Nolan has a track record for making cinematic gold, so it's no wonder Universal was willing to tango with Christopher Nolan. This year, in a year like no other except for the year that preceded it, almost saw a historic strike when IATSE, the union for crew members of film and television sets, threatened to go on strike for the first time in its 128-year history. 
This would have shut down all union production on all film and television sets until an agreement would have been met. After a decent chunk of time where film and TV couldn't get made at all because of the pandemic, this would have been a huge financial blow to studios. The reasons for going on strike were varied, but included the fact that they were having workdays longer than 12 hours with few breaks, lack of proper facilities, rates below $18 an hour for skilled labor, and just overall miserable working conditions. They were also asking for equal pay for productions that are streamed online and not released theatrically, which has been a rising issue for years because of the streaming channels. Crews that work on streaming shows are paid at a discounted rate, even though it's the exact same job. And as we've discussed quite a bit the last couple of weeks, the difference between between the two is increasingly becoming blurred. Some studios and producers also implement something called a fratter day, which I talked about when we dealt with this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, which is a work day that begins on a Friday in the late morning, early afternoon that often extends into the wee hours of Saturday. This happens due to the other work days running over time. So each day they start a little bit later and it completely wrecks your weekend. You don't really have one. So it just kind of feels like you're working all the time and not getting any time off. IATSE had been working since May of this year with studios and the AMPTP, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, to try and procure better conditions for their 60,000 members. After 98% of IATSE ratified a strike, about 36 hours before that strike was scheduled to start, it was announced that an agreement had been met. It didn't fix a ton of problems, but it did enough to stave off a strike as the agreement was ratified for better or worse on November 15th of this year. So, now that we're approaching the time when Oscar films come out, let's take a look at what might be up for the shiny statues next year so you can get a jump on award season watching. The good news is, is you've probably actually heard about at least some of these films, unlike last year. Spoiler alert, it's going to be another big year for the streaming platforms, though probably not big enough for one of them to get that first Best Picture Oscar. I don't think that's going to happen yet. So, for potential nominees this year, first up, there's West Side Story, which is from 20th Century Studios. And does anyone know what West Side Story is? It's a remake of the 1960 film of the same name, which is based on a stage play by Stephen Sondheim that is loosely based on the story of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The remake is directed by Steven Spielberg and critics have been raving about the film. Apparently, it's even better than the original, which definitely has my attention because the first one is incredible. 20th Century Studio is owned by Disney, as is Searchlight Pictures, and their film Nightmare Alley, which is probably the film I'm most excited for that has been appearing on several shortlists to potentially be nominated for Best Picture. This one's directed by Guillermo del Toro, and the film is about a con man whom learns a dangerous set of skills from a clairvoyant and a mentalist to try and swindle the rich folk. What he doesn't realize is that his next target, a dangerous tycoon, may be his most formidable foe yet. Nightmare Alley has a really cool noir look, and I adore Guillermo del Toro, so this one's high on my list for sure. Next, we've got a more indie film in the form of Belfast from Focus Features, which is a black and white period film directed by Kenneth Branagh and is a semi-autobiographical pick which chronicles the life of a working class family and their young son's youth during the late 1960s in, you guessed it, Belfast. This film's supposed to be incredible. I haven't managed to get out to see it yet because it was like blink and you missed it when it came out here. Apparently it's incredible, especially the performances. The third film potentially up for the big, big award is The Power of the Dog, which you can actually watch on Netflix right now if it isn't in theaters near you. 
The film has quite a few big names in it, including Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, who are being marketed hard for acting nominations. It could also land a directing nomination for Jane Campion, which would make it the second year in a row that a woman will be nominated for Best Director. If I'm not mistaken, this will be the first time that has ever happened. The other big Netflix film, which we talked about earlier, is Tick, Tick, Boom, which was directed by Hamilton Bard, Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's also likely to get some award love, definitely some acting noms, very much potentially Best Picture. Warner's got two contenders for Best Picture this year, according to Variety. First is King Richard, which is the film about the childhood of tennis stars Venus and Serena Williams and their relationship with their father, Richard, while they were growing up. The other Warner film some are speculating might be up for Best Picture is Dune for some reason. Don't get me wrong, I liked Dune, but it was only half a movie in my opinion. But apparently the trade papers are super stoked on Dune and think it will get a Best Picture nomination. Amazon Studios has two big contenders this year as well. The first is Being the Ricardos, which is directed by Aaron Sorkin and follows Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz during one of the most tumultuous periods of their romantic and professional relationship. Terrible title aside, I truly hate the title of this film. We can likely expect at least a handful of acting nominations to come from this film if it doesn't receive a Best Picture nomination. But as I've told you in the past, Hollywood loves watching films about itself, and the only thing they love more than watching films about themselves is giving awards to films about themselves and in addition to that they really love Aaron Sorkin so even if it's only just an okay film it's still going to get some award season love. Amazon's other contender for Best Picture is Coda, which is about a young hearing girl in a deaf family who finds a passion for singing when she joins her school choir. As someone conversationally fluent in American Sign Language, I am really digging this uptick in content about the deaf community. Other films that we might expect to see up for awards this year include Tragedy of Macbeth, which I mentioned earlier, Licorice Pizza, Don't Look Up, and The Lost Daughter. So get out to the theaters and start ticking these off your list because you're definitely going to be hearing about them a lot in the next few months. Well, I guess I should do a wrap up for this year for this podcast since this was my first full year as a podcaster. Still makes me cringe when I say podcaster. Um... (laughs) Y'all, I have been having the time of my life doing this. It's made me a better writer. It's kept me sane in the second craziest period of my life. That's a story for another time for those of you who don't know me personally. And it's just made me a better communicator and speaker. I've also learned a stupid amount about an industry I've worked in for a decade, which has only made me love film more than I ever thought was possible. So this year, I told you the histories of some of the big jobs in show business, the love lives of some iconic Hollywood figures, a slew of murders that rock Tinseltown, a glimpse into the history of animation, a super depressing month, which I regret doing, about tragically lost actors because it bummed me out forever, famous showbiz feuds, a bit of Asian cinema, some cult classic films, some stabby stabby murder dudes. We learned some history and how movies don't always get history right. And finally, how two women took on the man before wrapping up with some some of the big film news from this year, which is what we're doing right now. That's 46 episodes counting this one. What a freaking ride, you guys. I want to thank all of you who've been sending me nice messages and reviews this year. I'm terrible at acknowledging compliments, but know that they have been very much appreciated. This is such a singular activity for me that sometimes it's kind of hard to fathom that anyone actually listens to this, but apparently you all do. And there might be quite a few of you that I don't even know personally. And since I'm still a 
very tiny podcast, everyone has been super duper nice, which is great. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting me, letting me into your ear holes for like 30 minutes or so each week and staying with me as I figure this out. I'm I'm getting better every time. This is still very much a journey. So yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for the content I've done and the content I've planned for next year. And, you know, can't wait to share for you. Just thank you for thank you for an amazing year. I really, really, truly appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week and this year. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm going to leave you hanging for what January is going to be about. So thanks again for listening. And until next year, that's a wrap.